If you are young and single and female, and uh, you just hate the experience of having to explain to family members and friends why you are not in a committed dating relationship right now, Matt Homan has created an app for your smartphone. It's called Invisible Boyfriend. And I, I am not making this up, okay? This is too weird to make up. It will allow you to exchange, ladies, single ladies, it will allow you to exchange texts and, and emails with this imaginary boyfriend. And Matt Homan explains it's not because he's trying to delude you into thinking you got a boyfriend when you really don't. It's, it's to help you, listen, it's to help you tell a better story about a relationship you're not in. You know, this is such an absurd statement. I just got to read it again. Our intention has been to build something that helps you tell a better story about a relationship you're not in. Now, this is not an introduction to a sermon on dating. This is an introduction to a sermon on prayer. Because just as Matt Homan's app is to help you converse with an imaginary boyfriend, so praying helps you connect, converse with an imaginary God, a God who's not really there. See, praying doesn't really do any good. And you just think it does you good, and if you think it does you good, great. It'll make you feel better. It'll have a placebo effect in your life. Now, if you're a person of faith and you're getting mad at me, let me make you a little madder, okay? By asking you the question, if we believe other than what I just said, if we believe that prayer does make a difference and connects us with a real God, with a God who has made the heavens and the earth, then why don't we pray more than we do? If we really believed this, why, why don't we pray more than we do, not only about ourselves, but about other people, not only in times of crisis, but like all the time. Today, we're going to talk about the priority of prayer as modeled by Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17, okay? John chapter 17, as you're finding it, this is the final installment in a seven-part series called Dinner in a Hostile World. Dinner because it's teaching of Jesus at the Last Supper. He's got his 12 closest friends around him, and he's talking about the fact that when he leaves the planet... Okay, they're going to be left behind in a hostile world. In fact, every follower of Jesus down through the centuries who is determined to follow him, who's determined to live according to his morals, his values, his priorities, his mission, is going to encounter hostility in this world. And so Jesus wants to prepare us. This is his teaching. His last supper teaching is recorded in four chapters in the Gospel of John. John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And the final topic that Jesus addresses in this dinner table discourse is prayer. And Jesus doesn't just talk about prayer in this passage. Jesus demonstrates it. He, he, he prays a sort of, of model prayer right in front of his buddies. Now, what's interesting about this is, uh, you know, the gospel biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record on numerous occasions Jesus praying, but seldom do they tell us what Jesus prayed. Okay, so, like, what did he say when he prayed? What did he include? What did he not pray about? John 17 is one of those rare passages that gives us the content of Jesus' prayer. In fact, it's not just a glimpse of his prayer life, this is 26 verses long, the entire chapter of John 17. Jesus is obviously providing his followers with a tutorial on prayer. When you pray, he's saying, this is how you do it. Okay, this, this is what you ought to include. 
In fact, Jesus' transition at the Last Supper from teaching to praying, it was absolutely seamless. If your Bible's open to John 17, look at the first verse. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Okay, after Jesus said what? Well, after Jesus said everything he'd been teaching them in John 14, 15, and 16 about living in a hostile world, without stopping to take a breath, in mid-sentence, Jesus goes from lecturing to praying. Just starts praying. Because prayer was part of the lecture. Praying is part of the lesson Jesus is teaching his followers at the Last Supper. It's something that he wants to teach you and me to do. You know, if we're going to survive, if we're going to thrive in a hostile world, friends, we've got to learn how to pray. We've got to learn how to pray. John 17 is a tutorial. It's a how-to YouTube clip, okay? Some of you are so good at this. Anytime you need to fix something, bake something, make something, you go to YouTube and you find a tutorial and you follow it. This is the tutorial on prayer. And Jesus wants to teach us not only how to pray for ourselves, the focus here is on praying for others. Now, there's a word for this. There's a biblical word. What's the word? When you pray not just for yourself, but specifically you're praying for other people, what's the word for it? Call it out. Good. Intercession. Jesus wants you to be an intercessor. Jesus wants me to be an intercessor. That's why we're calling our study of John 17 today simply intercessor. Now, what I find most poignant about Jesus' lesson in this regard is its timing. Consider for a moment when this lesson about praying for others takes place. It takes place hours before Jesus' arrest, conviction, crucifixion. So what does he do? He prays for other people. He prays for... This is amazing. Now, it's true that later on in the evening, he'll pray for himself. Okay, later on in the evening, the Last Supper will break up and the disciples will walk across a darkened Jerusalem, across a narrow ravine called the Kidron Valley to a favorite hangout place, an olive grove, where they spend some time with Jesus on occasion, called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus will pray for himself so intensely that he'll sweat great drops of blood. But a few hours earlier, in just a short time, before his torture and execution, Jesus prays for other people. Do you pray for other people? Do you pray? Are you an intercessor? And I came across a joke recently, cartoon, uh, that, that sort of makes fun of some of the self-centered trivialities that we pray for. Take a look at this. Angel shows up, ladies praying in bed. God's swamped right now, so knock it off with prayers like, help my bun cake turn out great and help me find my nail file. Uh, does it ever feel like that's what your prayer life is made up of, those kind of trivialities? Do you pray for other people? When you pray for other people, what, what is it you pray? Now, do you only pray if you're aware of a crisis in their life? They're going in for open-heart surgery. Their marriage is coming apart at the seams. They're, they're having a bout of depression. They're, oh, we ought to pray. Or do you pray with regularity for other people in your life? And, and when you pray, what do you pray? What should you focus on? Jesus is about to give us a prayer list, the three list-topping items pop up in John 17 here. So take your program out, write these down because this is what you want to remember to pray for other people. Number one, pray for others' relationship with Christ. 
Pray for others' relationship with Christ. Now, let me read the first section of the prayer to you. And again, this is a lengthy prayer. This is a good reason why you ought to buy a Bible and bring it with you because you're going to have your Bible open on your lap and we're going to be referring back to what I'm reading here. But first, a cursory look at it, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I want to reread verse 3 again. This is a critical verse. This is eternal life. What's eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they're yours. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. Glory has come to me through them. Let's stop there. You know, it's obvious from these opening verses of Jesus' prayer that Jesus wants people to know him. He wants people to know him. And I'm not just talking about a head knowledge and knowing the right facts about Jesus' life but experientially knowing him, relationally knowing him. This is the most important thing we could pray for other people. We should be praying for their relationship with Christ wherever they are in their spiritual journey, whether they've not yet begun the journey yet or they're far down the road. Pray for their relationship with Christ. Now, for some people you pray for, this will mean that you pray that they surrender their lives to Jesus as the giver of eternal life. This is why I read verse 3 to you twice. Jesus prays, and he equates eternal life, verse 3, with knowing him. You may have seen the bumper sticker before. It says, know Jesus, N-O. Know Jesus, know eternal life. And then the second line reads, know Jesus, K-N-O-W Jesus, and you'll know eternal life. It's a pretty good summary of what the Bible teaches about eternal life. Now, until people surrender their lives to Christ, they are stuck in eternal death. They're stuck in eternal death. Why is that? Well, because the Bible teaches our sins, our our determination to follow our own way instead of God's way, they disconnect us from God, and God is the giver of life. The natural consequence is death. And so Jesus comes to earth to die the death we should die. He pays the penalty for our sins, which is death. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead now allows him to reconnect us with God, the source of life. And so knowing Jesus results in eternal life. And and this is why we pray that our friends, that our loved ones would surrender their lives to Christ. Now, now, two weeks ago, as we studied John 16, we said, well, this is never going to happen You know, our friends are never going to admit their their sin and how it cuts them off from a life-giving God. They're they're never going to acknowledge that their own righteousness is not enough to merit God's favor. They need the righteousness of Christ. They're never going to surrender their lives to Jesus unless what? 
two weeks ago, unless the Holy Spirit moves in their life, unless the Holy Spirit convinces them of their need for Christ. And that's why if you were here two weeks ago, as we closed the service, I challenged you, if you're a Christ follower, I said, my challenge to you is between this date and Easter, choose one friend, one loved one who's never surrendered to Christ. I pray every day for that person that the Holy Spirit of God would move in their heart. So this is just a checkup. How are you doing? Have, have you remembered to pray for that person? Have you looked for opportunities to share God's good news, to at least invite them next weekend to one of our Easter services? Nothing you pray for your friends is more important than a relationship with Christ, which begins with surrender to him. You know, if you're a mom or a dad, this is the most important prayer to pray for your children. You know, you're going to pray for other things. You're going to pray for their health, that God heals their asthma, or God puts them on a soccer team and helps them find friends, helps them to do well in school, gets them a date to prom. You're going to, you know, you're going to pray all sorts of stuff. But don't forget to pray with regularity that your kids would surrender their lives to Christ. You probably never heard of DeWitt Talmadge. Um, he's a hero of mine. He was a super pastor in his era. This is back in the early 1900s. He pastored a church in Brooklyn, and in that day when they didn't have mega churches, his church had an auditorium of 5,000 seats, and they were packed every Sunday. In fact, his messages were recorded. They were reprinted in newspapers across the country and estimated 100 million readers of Talmadge's sermons. He was friends of a uh, friend of presidents, of prime ministers, even a, a Russian czar. Many people in the early 20th century in, in our country began a relationship with Jesus because of this dude's preaching. So how did he come to know Christ? Well, I've read his biography. He was one of, in fact, the last of 12 children. And every Saturday, his mom would disappear for a couple of hours. And everybody just assumed, well, you got 12 kids. You're going to get some R&R. &R. You know, she's looking for a Starbucks someplace, right? Get away. And it wasn't until Mrs. Talmadge died and they read her journal that they discovered where she'd been going every Saturday, year after year after year. She'd been meeting with four moms, four buds, and they would pray together for their kids, specifically that the kids would surrender their lives to Christ Saturday after Saturday after Saturday. And not surprisingly, all 12 of the Talmadge siblings became Christ followers. I love that story. You know, the only thing that could make it better for me is if I was reading it was his dad and not his mom who was doing this with other dads. Because I think most moms, were, they seem kind of inclined to do this sort of thing. But dads... Are we intercessors for our own children? Are we praying, God, bring them to Christ? Let them surrender their lives to Jesus and follow him. You know, I, I, I know a dad who dedicates his lunch every Friday, skips lunch. That's his time to pray specifically for this, for his two sons. Okay, some of the people we pray for They've already surrendered their lives to Jesus. So what other aspect of their relationship with Christ should we be praying for? When you're praying for loved ones, when you're praying for friends who already know Christ, what do you pray for? Drop down to verse 5 again of John 17. Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. 
Jesus is talking about his glory here. After his crucifixion, three days later, there's going to be a resurrection. He's going to come back from the dead. And several weeks after the resurrection, there's going to be an ascension. He's going to return to heaven. And immediately upon his ascension, there's going to be a glorification. Jesus is going to be exalted to the right hand of God Almighty, where he'll sit down on his kingly throne, the throne he had vacated to go to earth on a rescue mission. And so Jesus, as he's praying here, he's praying about his glory, that his followers would understand it, fully appreciate it, one day see it in person. I counted the word glory and glorify six times in in this opening section of Jesus' prayer. You know, when you're praying for people who've already surrendered their lives to Jesus, pray that they would now glorify Christ in their lives, that they would exalt Jesus as king, that they would treasure Jesus as their highest priority. See, every Christ follower struggles with this. Our tendency is to glorify, to exalt, to treasure other things other than Jesus. We glorify our job. We glorify our boyfriend, our sailboat, our favorite sports team. And you could tell what you glorify, what you exalt, what you treasure by just tracking your personal resources. What, what gets your best time of the week? What gets your best energy, enthusiasm? What gets you get your best financial resources? Is, is it related somehow to Jesus? Do you glorify Jesus? You know, you, you make a decision every weekend. You'll have an opportunity to gather uh, here and exalt Jesus as king of all kings, but there will be other things competing for this time slot. So as you put your calendar together, what wins? What do you end up glorifying? One of my constant prayers for my Christ-following friends, quite frankly for me, is that Christ will reign supreme in our lives. I pray that we will dethrone those other things that have usurped Christ's place, that we will glorify Jesus, the exalted King of the universe. You want to pray for other people who are Christ-followers? Pray that they will glorify Jesus in their lives. And we're still not done with this part of Jesus' prayer. When it comes to praying for others' relationship with Christ, we pray that they'd surrender to Christ, that they'd glorify Christ, and that they would obey Christ. Look at verse 6 of John 17. Jesus prays, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, listen, and they have obeyed your word. And then drop down a couple verses, verse 8. He says, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. So when you're praying for your friends who are already believers, you pray that they would have a love for God's word, that they get into God's word on a daily basis, that they'd find truths to apply to their lives, to put into practice. You pray that if they're walking in disobedience to anything, found in God's word, that God would correct them before they do damage to themselves and others. This is the number one priority as you pray for others. You pray for people's relationship with Christ, that they'd surrender to him, glorify him, walk in obedience to him. You get it? Good. I want to do it one more time, though, okay? In St. Charles, it was a little iffy at Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb. You ready? You get it? Got it. Good. Okay, here's the second thing, to pray for others. Number two, you pray for others' protection from evil. 
We're going to go back to the prayer. Look at the second section, beginning at verse 11. And as I read, again, a lengthy section, you're going to hear me say the word protect or protected three times. So when you, you see it in the text, circle it in your Bible. Okay, verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. That's an allusion to Judas, right? Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I, I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. There's so much in this chapter, in this section that we could draw out. But I just want to underscore the fact that as we pray for others, we pray for their protection. And this is, this is a natural prayer for most of us. We pray that people would be uh, protected from the ravages of uh, the, the cancer that's been detected. Or from the breakup of their marriage. Or we, you know, we pray that they would be protected from abuse in their home. Or uh, praying for our kids to be protected on a date and get the car back and themselves back in, 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 in one piece. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a parent, this is probably the most frequent pray, prayer you pray for your kids, right? Prayer protection. And let me tell you, as a parent of grown children, it doesn't stop once they leave the house. So just a couple of months ago, my daughter Emily called me. She lives in Portland. This is a month before she gave birth to her second child, little baby boy. And I could tell from the tone of her voice, she was distraught. She said, Dad, I just came from the doctors, and they say the baby's got a problem with its kidney, one of its kidneys. And it looks pretty severe. In fact, they're going to move me. Uh, to a hospital with a NICU, with a neonatal unit, in case they got to operate on the baby as soon as it's born. And I, I knew she was not only uh, anxious, I knew she was disappointed, because her first baby, a year and a half ago, her first baby was born two months prematurely and had to stay in the NICU for five weeks. This time around, she just wanted to bring the baby home. So I said, honey, I'll pray for you. Mom and I will be praying for you. And so Sue and I prayed that God would protect our daughter, that God would protect this little child in her womb. When the, the baby was born last month, we got a video of this. Her husband, my son-in-law, Adam, comes out of the delivery room to announce to the family that's gathered in the waiting room that the baby has been born, that the baby's absolutely healthy, that the baby's kidney's working, and Adam shouts out, he peed and he peed and he peed again. This is going to go down in the annals of the nicotine family history. You know, what a line. God answered our prayer. He peed and he peed and he peed again. Now, this is our prayer for protection. However, when Jesus prays protection for his followers in John 17, he has a much more sinister danger in mind. And I'm wondering if it's not a danger that we often don't think to ask God to protect our friends and family from evil. Protection from evil. Now, the Bible teaches that evil arises from three sources in our lives. From the world, from Satan, 
from our own inherent sinful nature, what the Bible calls the flesh, two of those three enemies are explicitly mentioned in Jesus' prayer, and the third one is implied. Now, let me start with the world. You're going to see this source of evil, the world, mentioned 12 times in Jesus' prayer. 12 times. Three of those times are in verse 14. Let me read it to you again. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Now, when Jesus refers to the world here, he's talking about worldly values, worldly morals, worldly priorities that are opposed to God. The world is constantly assaulting Christ followers. You know, you feel it through peer pressure. You pick it up in the media. You know, the songs that are, that are sung, the movies that we go to, the websites we, we, we visit. You, you, you get it in public education as our kids are taught things that are, are sometimes contrary to God's word. You know, even the government gets in the act and passes laws on occasion that fly in the face of what God's word teaches. The world harasses Christ followers, and sometimes it's not just a, an attack. Sometimes it's a seduction. The world is seducing us. The world's saying, come join us. You know, stop being such a stick in the mud. Stop being so out of step with the rest of the culture. Come on. Join the world. And, and, and then there's Satan, whom Jesus refers to in this prayer as, as the evil one. Look at verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them, there's our protect word, from the evil one. The Apostle Paul warns Christ followers in Ephesians 6 verse 11 that if you don't wear the spiritual armor that God provides you, if you don't put it on every day, you're going to fall prey to the evil one, to the devil who's constantly scheming against you. Satan is going to make certain that temptation comes your way when you're most vulnerable. Now, Satan is going to raise doubts in your mind about God, God's character, God's goodness. Satan is going to turn up the heat under every relational conflict in your life. He's going to make sure it gets as bad as it can get. Satan is going to blind you to the consequences of bad choices. Satan is going to discourage you, maybe to the point of suicidal depression. Satan is real. Satan is nasty. The third evil enemy from which we need protection, though it's not mentioned explicitly in John 17, it's our own sinful nature. See, with absolutely no prompting from, from, from the world, with absolutely no prompting from Satan, we, we just have a natural bent toward selfishness, lust, dishonesty, anger, bitterness, materialism, you name it. We all have an enemy within. So how do we pray for others' protection from evil? You know, Jesus doesn't give us too many details in his prayer. He just prays for protection from the world, from Satan. So let me give you some practical suggestions here, how to do it. When I'm praying for friends, family members, protection from evil, one of the things I pray is that they'll just see sin for what sin is, that they'll find it to be distasteful, revolting, disgusting. 
Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, to fear the Lord, to reverence God is to hate evil. Now, the trouble is it's hard to hate evil because often evil comes to us quite attractively, dressed up, disguised as something nice, good. So one of the things I pray for people is, God, we, we, we're, we're like stupid fish. We miss the bait and grab hold of the hook. You know, we're just we're so focused on, 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 the, on the bait that we miss the hook behind it. So help people to see the hook. Help people to see the sinfulness of sin. Something else I pray for people. Help sin to come to light in their lives. Okay, bring to light the sin that they would otherwise hide so that they'll deal with it. Now, I'm not praying that God would out people in an embarrassing sort of way, in a super public way. I'm just praying as they read God's word, if they're a Christ follower, something would zing them. Or some friend would have the courage to speak up and draw their attention to, you know, to something that's out of line with God's word. This was a constant prayer of mine as a dad as my kids were growing up. I would pray that God would bring to light anything in their lives that was kept in darkness that would be destructive to them and to other people. In fact, I told my kids, I said, this is what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that mom and dad find out about all that stuff you want to keep hidden, okay? I'll never forget one time I was, our family car was in at the, the repair shop. The mechanic, who's a friend of mine, said, yeah, I saw your car flying past me this week, doing like 50 in a 30 zone, and I look over, it's your daughter driving. I said, really? Thank you for that. And so my, my Leadfoot daughter and I, we had a conversation that night about her driving. She was amazed. How did dad know she'd been speeding? I said, because I'm praying. You know, you're going to be, it's going to come to light. All right. In fact, to this day, you know, I get a kick out of the fact my kids still think as young adults that there are things I don't know about their lives that I do know. I just never told them I know. Okay. So I, I pray for, for, for my friends, for family members, that things would come to light. And then I pray that they would be quick to repent, that they wouldn't get their back up. They wouldn't become defensive. They'd say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. God, take this away. God, change this behavior. You know, I love the way David prays in Psalm 32. He, he tells the Lord, you know, there was a time when I didn't want to acknowledge my sin to you, and I was miserable. My strength was sapped like the heat of summer. It was like every bone in my body was broken, and then I confessed my sin to you. I got it off my shoulders. It was like this huge weight dropping behind me. That's what I pray that my friends would experience. One final thing I pray for is I pray that they would be protected from evil is that I pray they'd have a good, good offense. Now, you've heard the expression, the sports expression, that the best defense is a good offense. Okay, when your football team is scoring a lot of touchdowns, when their offense is continuously on the field, they don't, don't have to worry as much about their defense. Now, keep that in mind as I read to you again one of the closing verses in this second section of Jesus' prayer on protection from evil. Drop down to verse 18. Jesus prays to his heavenly Father, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I have sent them into the world. Now this line should startle us a bit because in this entire section of Jesus' prayer, he's been talking about this source of evil called the world. And now he says he's sending his followers where? Into the world. He's putting us in harm's way. Why is Jesus doing this? 
Well, Jesus says in this verse, just as God had sent him on a mission, which was to rescue people from their sins by dying on the cross, so Jesus is sending us on a mission to rescue people from their sins by telling them the good news about Jesus, by serving them in Jesus' name, by building a church with ministries that point people to Jesus. So, you know, if you're a Christ follower, Jesus wants you to be on mission. Jesus wants you to be an influencer in the world. Now listen to this. The more you determine that you're going to be an influencer, the less possibility that you'll be an influence-e. You following this? The more you determine that you're going to impact the world for Christ, the less chance that you're going to be impacted by the world. So we, we get into more trouble with sin when we're not keeping ourselves busy serving God. Now, please understand, I'm not saying you can't get yourself into trouble even when you're serving God. You, you, you can. I'm just saying that our, our defense takes a beating when it comes to evil when we're not living out an offense. What, what does this have to do with your, your praying for other people that God would protect them from evil? Well, when I pray for other people in this regard, I pray that, that God would motivate them to get on mission. I pray that they would move beyond sitting and soaking at weekend services, that they would roll up their sleeves, they would, you know, they would start teaching children in our kids' world or serving the poor on a second Saturday or ministering to uh, mentoring an at-risk child through Kids Hope or visiting their neighbor at the hospital, arriving at their workplace on Monday morning determined to be an ambassador for Christ because the best defense against evil is a good offense. You know, if you're, if, if you're not on mission, if you're not serving Christ, it's just so much easier to allow sin to persist in your life. So you, you pray for others' protection from evil, from the world, from Satan, from their own sinful flesh. By praying that they would find sin distasteful, that it would be brought to light in their lives, that they would be quick to repent of it, that they would go on the offense and determine to serve Christ. One more thing to pray for. You pray for others' unity with people. We go back to the last third of Jesus' prayer. Pick it up at verse 20. Unity with people. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who would deliver, who will believe in me, rather, through their message. So Jesus says, I'm not just praying for these disciples. I'm praying for all believers down through the centuries. He's praying for you at the Last Supper. How about that? Verse 21, I'm praying that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you've sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. Wow, Jesus prays in these verses that his followers will experience unity. 
Did you pick up on the several references to oneness in this prayer? I tried to accent them as I, I, I was reading. And were, were you impressed with the quality of the oneness that Jesus is, is praying for here? He's not praying for some superficial, can't we all just get along sort of unity. He's praying for the kind of unity, he says, that he himself experienced with the Heavenly Father. That's his standard. That's what he's praying for. Oh, my goodness. I mean, look, look again at verse, verse 21. He says that all of them may be one, Father. Listen, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's the kind of oneness he's praying for. Jesus repeats the thought in the second half of verse 22 that they may be one as we are one. Friends, that's unity. I mean, you don't get any closer in a relationship than the closeness experienced between two members of the Trinity. We're, we're talking about God-like unity. In fact, that's the, the very reason why Jesus prayed for unity among his followers. He knew that it would point people to God. So look again at verse 23. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Why? Well then, don't miss this, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, radical unity points people to God. And radical unity says Hey, nothing but the grace of God, nothing but the love of God could produce a relationship like this one. I mean, you, you got two people in the same community group, and one, one's a Republican and one's a Democrat, and they love each other. See, this is radical unity. You got two people serving side by side in one of our ministries here. One of them's a CEO during the week of a company, and the, the other's a janitor at work. There's a, a relational unity. We, we got people worshiping side by side right now at our four campuses, one black, one white. They're brothers, they're sisters in Christ. Unity. You got retired people here, elderly people. You got high school students. And the high school students, if they love Christ, what they're saying is, I love being in a church where there are old people who love Jesus and kind of have set the, the way for me, and you've got older people looking around, especially when the music is loud and rocky, and they say, I'm sure glad it pulled in high school students. Because yeah. there's a unity. And we got Cubs fans and Sox fans in the same room right now. <laughs> yes. Now, here's, here's how I work this topic into my praying for others. Whenever I'm praying, whomever I'm praying for, I focus some of my intercession on the relationships in their life. Okay? If, if, they're, if they're married, what do you pray for? You pray for their relationship with their spouse. It's just you know, no-brainer, right? If you're praying for your teenage friend, you pray for their relationship with their folks. You know, when I, when I pray for friends, when I pray for loved ones, I just kind of roll through, scroll through their relationships. I pray for their relationships with workmates, with classmates, with their enemies, with their friends who need Jesus, with their neighbors, whomever. In fact, if I know of a conflict in a relationship in, in their life, that's where I'll zero in my prayer. And you'll often know about that. Now, so don't gossip about it. Pray about it for them. Now, as, as we draw things to a close, I mean, this gives you a lot to pray about. Okay, so let me give you some closing tips. If you want to be an intercessor, 
And as I say this, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out on our, our platforms. We're going to close in a song, singing a song about our need you know, for God in our lives. Other people have a need for God. That's why we pray for them. If you want to be an intercessor, which would warm the heart of Christ, this is why he's given you John 17. He's prayed for you right, right out in the open so you could observe and put it into practice so that you could be an intercessor this week. So three quick tips. One, make a list of the people you'd like to pray for. Because if you, if you don't make a list, let me tell you what will happen. The only time you'll pray for other people is when there's a crisis in their life. You'll pray for them, you know, when they're deathly sick, when they've been in an automobile accident, when they're headed off to divorce court. You know, what, that's when you'll pray. But you won't pray systematically. You won't pray the kinds of things we've been talking about today unless you make a little list. So you make a list that has your family members, a few friends, people you work with, whether they know Christ or don't your closest friends at school, you know, the people in your community group. If you're a community group leader, I hope you've got a prayer list that includes the people in your group and you pray for them regularly. If you're a kid's world teacher, you're praying for the children in your class. You know, just make, make a list, okay? Second thing is every day just take two or three names off the list and pray for them. Now, I, I'm an overachiever, so when I put my list together, it had like 100-plus names on it. And then I looked at this and I said, I can never do this in a day. I would never get anything done. So even if I split this up and prayed for like 15 people a day over seven days, you know, then you skip a day and the next day you got to do 30 people. And see, I'm not into guilt. So I want a guiltless approach. So what I do, I made my list and then I just take a little post-it note and move it down the list. So it doesn't matter if your list is 10 people or 20 people or 50 people. You just take a few names off. And if you skip a day or two days or five days, you don't beat yourself up. When you get back to it, you get back to it. You're, you're becoming an intercessor over time. Best place I have to do my intercessory prayer is on the elliptical machine at the health club. Okay, I always grab like three or four names with me, go to the elliptical machine as I'm, yeah, I'm pumping away. I'm praying for those three or four people. You could do it while you're driving in the car. You could do it while you're washing dishes, while you're walking the dog. You keep the list. You draw two or three, four names off it every day of people to pray for. And then lastly, you keep the sermon outline handy from today. So you remember that you're going to pray for the relationship with Christ. You know, that they would surrender to Christ, glorify Christ, obey Christ. You pray for their protection from evil. All those things we talked about that would insulate them from the world and the devil and their sinful flesh. And then you pray for their relationships with other people. L let me tell you what the reward is of doing this. And then we'll sing. You know, the reward is, as you become an intercessor, this is, this is my greatest joy in being an intercessor. I love to run into people and they'll say, oh, I've got to tell you what God's doing in my life. And they'll tell me and I'll think to myself, dude, that's exactly what I've been praying about for you. Now, I don't always say it like, dude, that's what I've been praying about for you. But I'm thinking it. I'm thinking this was so much fun because I prayed and look what God did. And that will happen to you more and more and more as you become an intercessor. You're going to walk among people and they're going to tell you what God's up to and you're going to say, yeah, I was part of it. I was, I prayed all right, let's sing a song in closing, and then the pastors from each campus are going to come up in closing prayer.